Okay, um, a couple weeks ago, we, uh, we had talked about uh, Christian virtues and um, spoke of courage, how it was uh, the testing point of those virtues. Um, I noticed that when we were talking about the virtues, one that, uh, that I didn't bring up, which I think was an important one, um, and I'm going to read from Acts real quick just to uh, kind of facilitate it. And I forgot to get the page number for it, but it's Acts um, 10, verses 24 through uh, 26. I'm not sure what the page is there. What's that? 819. And this is, um, this is after Pentecost. This is when the gospel is going out. And it's Peter, um, after he'd had a vision from the Lord. It's eight, huh? Uh, Ten verses twenty-four through twenty-six. So when it says, "On the following day he entered into Caesarea," now Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered. Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter helped him up saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. So, poor Peter, he's a... I I bring up Peter a lot, but he's a really good model for for the sanctification process that a person goes through. Because he started out being kind of a bumbling guy. Um, But at this point... Peter is showing a Christian virtue of humility, right? This guy fell at his feet and started worshiping him, you know. He could have been could have been pumped about it and accepted his worship, but he didn't. So, Peter had that qual- that quality or that state of mind already that he knew that he wasn't any better than you or me. He knew that he was one of just one of Christ's servants. So this was an example of you know humility amongst people. <clears throat> now in the previous verses, we, we're not going to cover that, but Peter also showed humility towards God. And it was when God had given him a vision shortly before going to Cornelius' house. And the vision, if you remember, was... Foods, eating foods, right? Foods that were unclean, that, Jesus, that the, Lord, the Lord was telling him were clean now. Now, it was also a representation that the Gentiles would be brought into the gospel. But Peter, who didn't want to believe this and even objected for a second, eventually humbles himself and says, all right, Lord, you're saying this is the way it is, then this is the way it is. So he was showing some biblical humility there. And I want want you to kind of just think back. You guys, anyone who's older than me is going to know this as well, but pastors don't always show biblical humility. How many times in your lifetime, I know in mine there's been a few, but how many times in your lifetime have you heard somebody say that the the end times are coming and they give a date? They give an actual date for it. Now, why would I say that that's not showing biblical humility? 
Because Jesus Christ said that no man would know the day or the hour. And yet these people are saying that they know it. They know something that God said they're not going to know. So they're not showing that biblical humility. They're going against the Scriptures. All one can do is take a guess and don't become close to the possibility. And they can guess, yeah. They can guess, but either way, God says they're not going to know. They're not going to know. So, if you could... Yeah. True. Um, if you want to uh, turn to page 731. We're going to be in... Uh, it's chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 4. We're going to talk about when the apostles asked Christ something similar to this. So, at the time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him amongst them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you change and become like this child, become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So whoever will humble himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They had asked beforehand, they had said, Lord, who is going to be who is the greatest in the kingdom? In the kingdom of heaven. So it was a debate amongst the apostles. And it's not ironic that they were asking this because they were still under the mindset that there was going to be a physical kingdom come to earth. Right? Jesus told them the kingdom of heaven has come. So they're thinking of offices, positions. You know, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to have that position? So it's not something that is uncommon for people to think of. Now Jesus could have just pointed to himself and said, I'm the greatest, right? And who would have argued that? But he didn't. So, what about when people have said things like that? Because Peter could have tried to stand up and say, well, I'll be the greatest, maybe. Or John the Beloved. I'm going to read to you a, a quote from, a, from somebody, and you can tell me if they were overstepping their grounds on this, on who would be the greatest. This says... Come on, ye prosecutors, ye false swearers, all hell, boil over, ye burning mountains, roll down your lava, for I will come out on the top at last. I have more to boast of than ever any man had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. A large majority of the whole have stood by me. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did. I boast that no man ever did such works as I. The followers of Jesus ran away from him, but my followers have yet to run away from me. Not really very fitting with what we've been reading. That was the originator of the Mormon faith who said that. So, who was the greatest in the kingdom? That's what the apostles were asking, and Joseph might have said it was him. 
So in these verses, though, Christ brings that child in the middle of this group of people when they've asked this question, which would probably be kind of perplexing. Lord, who's the greatest? Oh, and he just calls a kid over, right? So it might have been a little bit disappointing because he was saying that you had to model after this child. Well, you have to think back to biblical times, and children were in a way kind of property back then. Not completely, but in a way that was kind of the culture. And so they were seen but not really heard, right? They didn't have a say in things. And in some ways that's still true today. So what did, what, what did that mean when he brought them in? Well, he's telling the apostles that the greatest in the kingdom are less, which is counter to what they were thinking, right? Um, what do I mean? Like, kids are not threatening, generally, except for mine, maybe. Um, you know, they, that's the model that we should be going after. They, they have a small presence. They're not dominating in a room. Um, they're generally not deceiving, or if they think they are, you can see past it. You know, anybody with small children knows when they lie to you, and they think they got away with it, and you just shake your head at them. So these are the qualities that he was talking about for a Christian. Now, oftentimes, though, people, when they think of children, they think of innocence, right? That's the, that's the general thing that we think of. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about humility. Well, are children always humble? No, not necessarily. But he's talking about humility and status and social status. These children have no, they had no status whatsoever. So he's saying that if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you're to have no status whatsoever. Not what the apostles were thinking of. Probably not what Judas was thinking of. So, humility is, it's a status more than a, I'm not sure what I'm looking for there. It's not what you're trying to, to go after. So children don't try to be humble. They just, they just are in that, in that aspect, in the social status in the world. Now, if we wanted to, we could just go to Jesus on what he was, on what he was and who he is now. So in Philippians uh, chapter 2, Verses three through eight. It's on eight seventy three. If you want to read, if you want to follow along, this talks about humility to the utmost. Eight seventy three, uh, chapter two, verses three through eight. If you want to see humility, this is this is where it's at. In the beginning of this chapter, they're talking about how you should act, how you should be, which is the same topic of what we had going on with the apostles there. And so it says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. So there's our ultimate form of humility. Jesus Christ, who being God, took the form of man and was humble to the point of the cross. Why did he do that? It was his role given to him by the Father. Could he have said no? I guess. But he humbled himself because he knew where his position was with the Father and is. It's about biblical submission, really, in that point. Because Jesus Christ, we know, is not worth any less than the Father. But he has a role, and he accepted his role and took it. Your role doesn't equal your worth. Sometimes a role is just a job, and he did his. So, you don't have to turn to this one, but in James uh, chapter 4, verse 6, it says, He gives a greater grace... Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So grace comes to the humble. That's a high bar, right? And because of this, it's pretty obvious, but pride and humility are complete polar opposites. Now, This says that God resists the proud. So if you're proud in your life, and you're proud going against God, can you oppose God? I can't. Something to think about. Now, do we fail in this? In humility? Yeah. Yeah, we do. We ebb and flow. And thank God for His grace that we do fail, right? Right? But you and I, we have, we have areas of pride in our life. But you need, a, you need humility in one very important area to begin with to, join, to start the Christian life, right? Because humility doesn't earn God's grace. It says that God gives grace to the humble, but humility does not earn it. It's a position that you have to be in to accept the gospel of Christ. Because if you think about it, if you're proud enough to admit that you don't have sins that will keep you out of heaven, then you don't have that grace, right? You have to have that position of humbleness to admit that you need a Savior for your sins. That's the starting point. Now, there are prides in other parts of your life that will that God will deal with, but the initial one, you have to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That takes some humility to do that. And that's all of us. So when we, when we submit to God, you have that conversion, wherever, whenever it is in your life, that's when you've admitted that you can't do it on your own. 
I used to, some of you guys know, I worked in a, in different jails for about 10 years. Um, and I would talk with inmates about stuff like this sometimes late at night when I was doing my rounds. And the biggest, the biggest uh, roadblock for them to Christianity was always, I've done some really bad things. And they had, right? But when they've done something bad versus one of you, one me, is there any difference when you've lied or when they have murdered somebody? Is there any difference? On earth there is to our laws, but sin is sin to God. It's all an affront to God. The smallest sin is enough to keep a person out of heaven, which is why we need God's grace, because through Jesus Christ we can find that perfection, right? So these people, they just, you know, a lot of times they just couldn't get it. I've done some really bad things. God isn't going to forgive me. And what it is, they're not humbling themselves. Their pride is telling you, telling me when I'm talking to them, that my sins are greater than God's grace. Right? And it's a common problem in there. I probably talked to hundreds of people like that. So, 1 Peter... Uh, five, six. Um, I gotta get drunk. I'm drying out here. <laughs> Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. If you're looking for it, it's on 902. Sorry. <clears throat> Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. So the verbiage on here, if you notice, is under the mighty hand of God. When you've submitted to God, you are under that hand now. Right? Your life is not your own. Christ owns you. Things are done on His time, not yours. Right? We know we always say His will be done, His kingdom come on heaven and on earth. Yet sometimes we try to do things on our own time. So, God has that hand over you now. God will humble you in whatever aspects of your life that you need it, when you need it, because He says you need it. Whether you want it or not, when you become God's, God will mold you, right? And even if you have some pride in your life, which all of us do, you can't hide it. God can see everything. He can see into your heart. I always think it's funny because you watch like uh, some of the old action movies and uh, maybe even some of the new ones. Something bad will happen and the people will say, all right, God, you're sitting this one out. I'm going to go and do, do this or whatever, right? So it's not how it works, you know. God is in control of everything. God will humble you in whatever aspect you need it, whether it be monetarily, maybe He'll use health. Whatever it is that you need to be molded, He will do. And sometimes it's painful. Right? Sometimes it is. I've had some very hard times. So, 
To reiterate though, this is not, it's not a work. Like I said, you're not going to humble yourself into heaven. This is things that God will do to you to make you more Christ-like. There was a pastor named uh, A.W. Tozer. He said, Walking in humility isn't focusing on what we are not. Rather, it's declaring what God is. So that's the beauty of the gospel. We know what we're not. We don't have to focus on it. I know I'm a sinful person. I know I have hundreds of flaws. But we know what God is. And we know what God does to us. And does for us as He lives in us. So if we think less about ourselves and focus more on the Lord, Jesus will work on those areas of humility that we lack. Because His Spirit is residing in us and always working in us.